This is the recording of a Bible study <coughs> given at the Chapel of the Open Book under the covering title, The Pre-Roma, and is number 12 of the series and brings this series to a conclusion this evening by surveying the whole of the book of Genesis. It is our custom at these meetings to read a portion of Scripture together. And those of you who are listening to this recording, if you care to join us, will you switch off for a moment or two while we read together Ephesians chapter 4. It may be that some of you have thought, I wonder what connection Ephesians 4 has with a survey of the book of Genesis. Well, before we get the survey of the book of Genesis over, I hope we shall see that it has a very legitimate word to say. I'd like you immediately to keep in your mind the fact that the ascension of Christ in verse 10 is absolutely necessary for the word pre-Roma. He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens that he might fill, or the margin, he might fulfill all things. If he never ascended, that work would still be pending. So you see, it has a place. But you might say to me, well I don't see how that's coming in Genesis. Oh, now you're going to wait and see because we're going to attempt this evening to just have a survey, a running survey, of this first book in the Bible so that it may round off these studies and give a sort of completeness to the first section. Just what we will do with regard to these recordings, we're not quite sure, because uh, the subject before us covers the whole Bible, and every part of the Bible is a part of it. So there's a certain amount of discrimination necessary. Well now, we are hoping that this chart which you see can be reproduced, however difficult it may be in the reduction. I want to make it speak if we are able to send it out with these recordings, and so you are going to help me this evening as we make this our study. The first thing that strikes you when you begin to read the book of Genesis is that you're everlastingly coming across somebody's pedigree. On the surface, if you're not fully acquainted with the book, you say, well, there's only 11, 11 generations given, friend, there's considerably more than 20. I'm speaking from memory. I think I might say 30, but I want to be on the safe side. I haven't counted them for a long time. Has any amount of little pedigrees and genealogies slipped in? So the whole book is packed with them. Now why? If you're merely using the book of Genesis as a book to find a comforting text, you won't get much comfort out of so-and-so begat so-and-so begat so-and-so. But if you know this, that the primitive seed plot of the Bible is Genesis 3.15, the promise of the seed of the woman, and all that that involves, you'll see how particularly important it is that there should be not the slightest hesitation when at last that seed should come into the world to be able to trace its pedigree right back, uncontaminated, to the beginning. And that is more or less one of the reasons why this book is important. The seed plot is here. Its development goes on until the various outstanding characters as type and shadow, Adam and Noah and Abraham and so on, set the pace and more or less assure you that God has a purpose. He knows the end from the beginning and all these phases and stages have been planned as types and shadows. Of course, it's impossible for any one of us to explain why it was necessary to wait 4,000 years before the birth of Christ. We may have our suspicions as to why, but they are not expositions. And so we just accept it, that in the wisdom of God, knowing the purpose for which Christ was ordained to come, it is called in the scripture the fullness of time. So it's a word that's under our very subject. The very coming of Christ was in the fullness of time, just the very moment, not a moment before or a moment after. Shall we not take courage then and say, well, the more we think about this subject, the more we are certain that God will never be beforehand 
But blessed be God, you'll never be behind him. And we'll learn a lesson from Habakkuk, who worried himself because he got no answer, until God broke the silence and said, The vision is yet for an appointed time. At the right time it will speak, and will not tarry. But though it seems to tarry, wait for it, for it, it will surely come to pass. And that is where we stand. We've got enough knowledge of the word of God to help us over the difficult passages where we have to say this beats us and we cannot fully fathom it. So at the top of this chart, right in the top corner, there's a quotation from a very difficult passage in the prophet Malachi, Seeking a seed of God. If you read the authorised version, seeking a godly seed. A godly seed is one thing, but a seed of God is even more specific. And the throwback from Malachi is to the appointment of marriage right back in the beginning, the first man and the first wife. And it was kept like that and it was ordained like that so that there should be this seed of God. But we've already discovered in these studies, seen it over and over again, that as surely as God introduces an aspect of his purpose, there's the wicked one who introduces a counterfeit. I've asked you to consider, quite reverently, that the whole Bible is a sort of a picture of a most wonderful game of chess. The two players are God Almighty and this great spiritual fallen being. And he makes a move. And then the scripture shows what God does to counter move. And at long last, you know before you get to the end, he's checkmate, finished. But it's a tremendous battle. And we do no good to the cause of truth to belittle the enemy. Although we may rejoice that victory is assured. So we've got this at the beginning. And if you will notice the chart, we've got here the man and the woman in the beginning in the garden. And then this thing, little red line goes. Every name on the chart you could decipher if you were near enough. And you get one who has been Enoch, you come to Methuselah and Noah, who goes right through the flood and comes out in the person of Shem, and right up here to Terah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, the royal line, and so set the case for the rest of the scripture. That's only one teacher. And the rest of the top of the chart is just a step out of the names of those who stand at the head of these genealogies. We have, first of all, the generations of the heaven and the earth, which include the making of the present system of things with man put in it. Then we have the generation of the sons, the generations of Adam, his descendants, the generations of Noah, then the generations of the sons of Noah, the generations of Shem, and then we meet the watershed of the Old Testament, Terah. Terah was a descendant of Shem and the father of Abraham. And he stands right in the middle of this series. Not only so, he stands right in the middle of the Old Testament. Because, you see, if we measure it merely by the number of chapters we read, he's only at the beginning of the book. But if we measure it by the number of years that have passed by, he's just exactly in the middle of the Old Testament. We find that 2,000 years elapsed from Adam to Abraham. And 2,000 years elapsed from Abraham to Christ. And as Terah was the father of Abraham, he stands at the center, a parting of the way. Now after you read Terah, the genealogies of the other nations of the earth are only sort of slight. We are still pursuing the line of the seed. And it's already now centered in the one peculiar nation. The nation that sprang from Abraham. The Semitic people. Japheth, the European people and others of a similar ilk, and the Hamitic people, other parts, they come in only occasionally. 
But the threading of the seed is now the dominant note. And so we have on the other side, there's Ishmael and Isaac and Esau and Jacob and the sons of Esau and that finishes that section. Strictly speaking, although there are 11 generations, there are only 7 that are absolutely associated with the coming of the seed. The sons of Noah are not necessarily included because it's immediately followed by the one son of Noah that does matter, Shem. And the Esau's genealogy and the sons of Esau and Ishmael himself, they are only sort of on the side issues. So, when you're reading the Companion Bible, rejoice in it, but read it with discrimination because it puts a covering word including Ishmael and Esau as the chosen people. Well, you know it isn't. But it's wonderful how blind we are when we see a structure. We never bother to examine it and we take it for granted or don't. And that, I, that goes for mine as well as, you, as anybody else's, this chart included. Well now, the bit that's on the next level is a, fan, uh, a, a set of teaching which is very fascinating and for that very reason we're going to omit it. The stars are said in the book of Genesis to be for signs and for seasons. But there's not a thing that God has used as an instrument of truth that hasn't been counterfeited and distorted by the enemy. And this is a very prolific one. On the Wilwyn's hour now, once a week, as far as my memory goes me, uh, serves me, uh, you just all line up because you were born between this date and that, and then you hear a discussion as to all your peculiar qualities because you happen to be born under this star or that star or the other. And the Old Testament scripture warned you about, about the astrologers and the stargazers and all that fantastic crew. And so we'll be giving a good rest. If you want a positive statement concerning what the original story of the heavens was, you can get a good outline in Dr. Bullinger's uh, book, The Witness of the Stars, and a sketch of it in the Companion Bible. But we don't want to load our minds up with things which are obsolete. The scriptures now have come with a fuller revelation than that picture language at the beginning, and so we'll leave these folks with their horoscopes and all their forecasts and keep to the book. I always like to remember that even in a day when these things were prolific and witches, witches were being burned, and I don't know what, Shakespeare puts these words before us. It is not in our stars, but in ourselves that we are underneath, and that's as true today as when he wrote it. So you can, you can imagine that I haven't got very much place for these lucky days and all these things. I'm always thankful my father impressed upon me in my early days that it was exceedingly unlucky to fall down and break my neck on Wednesday. And by the time I puzzled that out, I was a long way on the road. <laughs> well, now we come to the beginning of the story, the placing of Adam in the garden. And some of the things that I'm going to say to you is what we've already considered, but I'm gathering them all up. We discuss the question of his name, because we realise in the early books of the Bible the names of people have a very important place. As the world becomes more populated and names cease to mean anything, uh, we can't really judge a person because you say, May I introduce you to Mr. Smart? Well, you've got to wait. You don't know whether he is or not. But in those days, Adam, what does it mean? We know that Cain means something because his mother called him that, because she said, I have Cained or gained this child. We know that Seth means something because she says, God has Seth me or appointed. But what's Adam mean? And in the very verse where we're asking what it means, in the first chapter, verse 26, it says, God said, let us make Adam, our version says man, 
Adam, after in our likeness, after our image, no, in our image, after our likeness. And the word likeness, the Hebrew word likeness, D-A-M-A-H, supplies us with the name Adam. So I've just got it there, Adam from Damar, likeness. Well now we take our story, uh, journey, and we notice there's not only a red line going across, right through the ark, right into the next world, but we see a black line descending here. First of all, we have Abel and Cain slew. He's out of the running by that very fact. And then we have Cain and his pedigree. And you will notice that there's a suggestion here that is to represent a city. The first city to be built was not built by the Sethites. It was built by the Canaanites. It was built by Cain himself. And the city stands for civilization. And civilization has got its blessings. We won't, we won't deny it. But unless it's watched, it can be a snare. And these people were the inventors of the world. The harp and the organ. Well, we've had an organ played this evening and we trust it's been acceptable. The anvil and it's working in metals. And where should we be today if there were no metals worked? Some, some people might say, I wonder where we should be. Because most of the evils that we have to endure, as well as the blessings we endure, are only made possible by working in metals. You've seen that, haven't you? So there it is. You get this seed. So we have here now that which is suggested in the parable, that as sure as God sowed his seed, here they come, see, seeking the seed of God, here they go, as sure as he sowed his seed, there was another one, Cain was of that wicked one, he may have come from the same mother. That's, that's accepted of course. And now a mystery is there, just what happened, we don't know, good thing we don't, we don't inquire. But the scripture would never say a thing that wasn't true. Cain was of that wicked one and slew his brother. And just as surely as it says that God sowed his good seed in the field, so surely the wicked one came and in the self-same field he sowed his tares and they are said to be the children, not merely the doctrines of the wicked one. So now we start a twofold line of teaching which runs right through the scriptures, right to the last day. The conflict between the two seeds. And those of you who have read the book of Job, you realize that that sets before you in that drama, the two seeds. There is Satan attacking a man who was perfect. Not that he was a person who never sinned, or he hadn't got frailty. But the word perfect there belongs to his pedigree. He was one of the true seed, and so he was an object of Satan's attack. So that leads us to Noah. We are told that the earth was so corrupt that God himself grieved that he'd made man. And even though we may not attribute to God all the affections and all the feelings of humanity, yet he would never have used those words if it didn't mean anything. The last thing that the Bible presents us is with a God who is so infinitely remote from us that he sits aloft like some Buddha staring out into eternity. That isn't so. When he gave Christ, he spared not his only son and used the self-same words that were attributed to a human father who was willing to offer his son upon a mountain. The very self-same words about Abraham. And so it grieved God that he made man and the counter move of the devil had been so successful that it brought about the necessity to destroy man that God had made. But, there's always a but. It came perilously near to completion. But one man, one man was perfect in his generation. And he found grace in the sight of God. And that one man again saved the whole situation. 
It's been done more than once in the history of Scripture. And so we have, we, we come here to the ark. Now you might notice there's a line drawn here, just at the ark. That represents water. And then you'll discover uh, that it comes again. Just over here, where we cross into the land of promise. This divides the book of Genesis now into two main sections. From Adam to Noah, we are dealing with the human race. And then, from Abraham onwards, we are dealing with one nation. Adam is the head of the race, and Abraham is the head of the nation. The story of the human race is packed in to 11 chapters. The story of the one nation is packed in to the rest of the Old Testament and a good many books in the New. Consequently, it's not possible to avoid the history and the biography of the children of Israel. It's not possible to avoid it if you would learn the way of God with men. It doesn't mean to say that because he concentrated his attention upon the one chosen nation, he wasn't bothering about the rest of the world. We're distinctly told it was otherwise. We're distinctly told that God chose Abraham and said, I will make of thee a great nation, and in thee and in thy seed shall all families of the earth be blessed. So, while it seemed as though he left the rest of the world to go their own ways, he was concentrating his attention upon the one people that is grace and wisdom and chosen to be the vehicle of blessing to the rest of the world in his good time. To us it seems such a tremendous amount of work to undertake and such a long time to do it. Well, there's no answer to that. Whatever we do, God will keep his program. He will neither be hurried, nor will he be retarded. And the only consolation we can have is, we are sure of this, when we get to glory, and we see, and we know, as God sees and knows within our limits, we shall realise that he did the only thing that was possible to make it right, holy, just, and sure. Another feature which I think you'll perhaps be noticing as you're looking at this chart is that there's an ark here and there's a coffin there. You know the last words of this book of Genesis it tells you that Joseph was put in a coffin in Egypt. It's one of the most extraordinary books that you could ever conceive. A story is written and it starts with the creation of the universe. The first verse. The universe, not merely this present earth. But in the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And by the time you've read just 50 chapters, the last verse says that one man was put in a coffin in Egypt. Have you ever heard of a book with a plot like that? And you might say, well it doesn't sound to, have to be coherent. What point is there in it? Or there's a tremendous point. Believe me, the scriptures make far more of the coffin in Egypt and its consequences than the question of how heaven and earth was introduced. We've got our speculations as to the mode of creation. We've got our speculations as to death and the afterwards. But there's a tremendous lot more said about death and resurrection than creation because that is the essential feature and the essential part of this story. In the New Testament, the word for the ark in the days of Noah and the word for the ark in the tabernacle in the wilderness are one and the same word. Now you may be guessing what's coming. The word that is translated coffin is exactly the same word as the word ark in the tabernacle. Well, it is, isn't it? And Moses could have used the same word 
to describe the ark in the days of Noah. And one is tempted to wish that he did, but that's wrong, of course. Whatever is in the scriptures is best. But I think we'll willingly give up the connection that Moses could have made by using the same word in the days of Noah and the same word in the days of Joseph because it lets a little light in to the mind of a very great man. I suppose whatever our views may be, we'd have to admit that Moses was one of the greatest men that history records. You can't imagine a man who had been trained in Egypt, who had had the offer of being adopted into the royal family, who took the stand that he did, who led such a people out as he did, piloted them through the wilderness for 40 years, went up into the very presence of God, received the most extraordinary, wonderful code of laws in Ten words as they're, they're explained in the scriptures that the world has ever had. You can't think that he was just a non-entity. It's not possible. And yet, there's a very lovely little thought coming out of this. It means appeals to me. He uses a word which is rather uh, allied to the Egyptian than to the Hebrew when he describes the ark. Now can you see why? Moses had been brought up in Egypt, hadn't he? But didn't he owe his very life to an ark made of bulrushes, made by his mother, dabbed all over with slime outside to keep the water out? Well, when this man started writing the scriptures, God permitted him, permitted him, and I believe God would smile as he permitted him to call the ark that saved Noah and his family, by the self-same word that his mother described to him, the ark of bulrushes that saved him. So that's just a little aside. But I trust it's got a little word that we can, in the midst of the most mighty subjects, be all at home with regard to the most holy things at the self-same moment. And so this book, which opens with the creation of heaven and earth, ends up with the statement that one man was put in a coffin in Egypt and is all in harmony with the way that God writes his story. Because he's concerned with men who are put in a coffin. If he weren't, there'd be no Bible. There'd be no Christ who came. There would be no future. Heaven and earth was, was already there in the background as a beginning. So that as a platform and as a basis, this great family of redeemed ones should eventually be brought to their goals. Well now we'll just for a moment remind ourselves that the key word in connection with the ark is the word pitch. The Hebrew word kofa giving us our word which we now translate today by the word atonement. And so without picking, without repeating what we saw last time this is one of the key words with regard to the redemptive process which is going on. And then you will see, we've put the, the uh, rainbow which is there giving a pledge to um, Noah that destruction by a flood should never take place again. We've got down here a reference to the eight souls that were in the ark. And if you will consult both epistles of Peter you find that he not only says there were eight souls in the ark, but he tells us that, were, that Noah was the eighth person. And if you'd like to take it further, you'll discover that if you remove the name of Ham, take the name of Ham, who was the dark horse, I'm rather bad to say that, aren't I, uh, in the family, the numerical value of the names of Noah and Shem and Japheth are just 888. So that we're getting now an emphasis upon the number 8. Now the number 8 is the octave, whether it be in music or in colour, or in the days of the week. The first day of the week is the 8th day of scripture, and so Noah represents a fresh start. Now one of the uh, studies we had, and which are now on record, was to demonstrate by a good number of parallels that Noah 
stands in the book of Genesis as a picture of the second man, the last Adam. Adam is the type of him that was to come. And Noah was told identical words that were first said to Adam and Eve, replenish the earth. And that word replenish is our word pre-Roma. So it was carried through to a new world under the protection of the picture of atonement. Well then, we've got a split once again in the, uh, the, the, the three sons. There's Japheth with his sons coming down here. There's Ham with his sons there. And there's Shem with his sons here. Also, you can find the little lines and the names for most of them. And then we're concerned particularly with the ones marked in red. In the days of Peleg, in Genesis chapter 10, we are told the earth was divided. That doesn't mean geological divisions took place that split the continents, but I think we can agree that if we were living in the day when this country split off from the coast of France and went sailing a bit across what is now the English Channel, I don't think any human being would have lived on it. Or when the other splits took place, which brought the Atlantic into place and the great continent of America was divided. That's, that's too far back in the distant past. The word indicates that in the days of Peleg, the earth was divided among the inhabitants. And now we've got this little thought. I've got there the word 70 nations. And you may remember in the book of Deuteronomy, it speaks about the time when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance according to the number of the children of Israel. Well, how does that fit? Well, the number of the children of Israel that went in to, um, into the um, Egypt with Jacob to form the new nation was 70. And the number of nations that are given in Genesis 10 are 70. And the 70 nations were given their inheritance according to the number of the children of Israel and they were supposed to form a sort of circle, a camp with Israel in the centre, like the camp of Israel had the tabernacle and the priesthood of the Levites in the centre and the other people living all outside so the original purpose was that a kingdom of priests, Israel, should be in the centre of the earth with Jerusalem as the holy place and the rest of the nations radiating from them but joined with them. But that was objected to. That didn't suit the purpose of the evil one. So we find in Genesis 11, they said, let's, pre- let's stop here instead of being separated and scattered all over the earth. They called it scattered. You know, you can misrepresent truth by just choosing another word. Instead of saying, well, let's stop here. We'd rather have this than the inheritance that God has planned for us. That would have made it look like rebellion, wouldn't it? So they said, scattered. Just the same as the evil one. He didn't come to Eve and say, what a wonderful garden. What fruit there is in abundance, and only one little tree that you mustn't touch. He never said it that way. He said the same thing in the other way, which made that one tree something to be desired. And so we can go on even to the present day. You know, the the, uh, pet illustration of this principle is, I am strong-willed. You are obstinate. He is pig-headed. You see, the further we get away from them, the more we could emphasise the other side. It's supposed to be all the same thing. Well, when we get here, we get another another city. You see? Here's Cain City. Here's another city. And you'll notice it's got the signs of the zodiac suggested. Because when they built that city, our version says, whose top may reach unto the heaven. But as there's no words in the Old Testament passage for may reach, 
We leave them out. And then it looks rather peculiar. We build a city and a tower whose top with the heavens. But that's exactly what it means. It was a tower on which the signs of the heavens were recorded and there are still some in existence in Egypt and other parts of the East. And this was a piece of idolatry. It was the beginning of using the planets as symbols of gods and so introduced another scheme entirely opposite to the way and will of God. And so that's the beginning of Babel. This is Babylon coming onto the scene. The centre of satanic opposition and misrepresentation from the day when Nimrod founded it until it's destroyed according to the teaching of the book of the Revelation. So there's Babylon in Genesis and there's Babylon in Isaiah and there's Babylon in the book of Revelation. It's there right through to the end. The opposite to the city which God chose which has had such a precarious and difficult history. But one day to be called lovely and delightful and no longer for Satan but a centre in the earth for blessing. Well then we come to Abraham. He left God had told him to go out from his kith and kin to a land that God would show him. But we are distinctly told that Terah took Abraham and uh, while Abraham was about 70 years of old at the time and you think he'd have a will of his own yet you know enough of the Bible teachings of those days to know that parental authority was a little bit more strict than it is now among young parents anyhow. I can't see any parent today taking his son who's age 70 and telling him where he got off but this was. And there Abraham waits until Terah is dead and ultimately it crosses. You see, this is the point I'm trying to make. They went out of Ur of the Chaldees. They made a trek of 600 miles up country and they came to Haran and stayed there and they were in the same territory worshipping the same gods. So they were only leaving one denomination to join another. And not till the old man Terah was dead could Abraham take the essential move? And then he crossed the river. See, here's one here that divides the flood. Here's another. He crosses that river. And that is why he's called Abraham the Hebrew. For the word Hebrew means to cross over a river by a ford. It was an essential step that made a distinct move and a division. He crossed over. And he became then the father of the one new nation. Well that leads us to meeting Melchizedek. Another city, Jerusalem, called Salem in the first case, but Jerusalem subsequently. And he met Abraham after he'd brought back Lot from being captured by the kings. And from that moment, we gather that Abraham turned his eyes to something that was told him but are not recorded in scripture. We, are not, we, we don't know whether Melchizedek dropped the hint to him. We don't know how God. But we do know this, that from a certain moment, Abraham who lived, had lived in a fairly civilised city because only the Chaldees has been opened up by archaeologists. And we discover they had very fine houses and they even had very good plumbing. Did you know that? And he left all that and was content and willing to dwell in a tent and not a city. And the reason is given because he looked for a city which had foundations whose builder and maker is God and that is described as the heavenly Jerusalem. And there's not a single word about the heavenly Jerusalem in the whole of the Old Testament. But he knew about it. And there's a very great possibility that he knew about it through meeting the Melchizedek, who appears in the Epistle to the Hebrews as a type of Christ, king of peace, Salem, 
Melchizedek, Sadek meaning righteousness, king of peace. So we've got the three cities. We've got Cain's, we've got Babel, and we've got Jerusalem with its promise of a city that is yet to come. Then we are told that he asked God what sign or what guarantee would God give him that that land and that seed that he's promised should be. And then he gave him a peculiar answer in Genesis 15. He said that your seed shall be oppressed and serve another nation and after a certain period they shall come back again but they will not come back again until the iniquity of the Amorite is fully. So there's a light upon some of the problem of the ages. Why do we wait such a long time? Well, God is even apparently concerned that he will never cut off even the wicked until they reach their legs. So Israel had to suffer in Egypt while the iniquity of the Amorite filled its measure. And you and I have got to suffer in this present world instead of going straight to glory because the spiritual Amorite has not yet reached his quota, has not yet been driven out by Michael and his angels out of heaven down to the earth. But it's sure to come and faith waits during the interval. Well now that leads us to Isaac and to Jacob and to Judah and then on to the second coming. And it leads us to Joseph. Now, I've been purposely avoiding turning to scriptures tonight. We don't usually do that. But I knew this, that if we started looking up every verse that I've given you in the book of Genesis, we should never get through it. So it's no slight to the book, it's only because we're making the survey. But I would like to turn to the book now for the last features that we are considering and that is in relation to Joseph. In the uh, concluding chapters of this book of Genesis, we have the story of Joseph, and most of it is known to you because it is such a wonderful uh, picture of our Saviour. Chapter 37, just to pick out a few essential features. We are told in verse 3, Now Israel loved Joseph more than all his children, because he was the son of his old age, and he made him a coat of many colours. This coat of many colours distinguished Joseph from his brethren. It set him apart as the firstborn. Now, of course, you might correct me and tell me that Reuben was the firstborn. Oh, he was number one to be born, but whether he was the firstborn in the true sense is another question. He wasn't. He lost it. But how do I know that Joseph was the firstborn? Well, I'll ask you a question. Have you ever thought there is no tribe of Joseph ever mentioned? You think of the names of the tribes of Israel. You'll never say the tribe of Joseph. Well, you say, what's that prove? Well, Ephraim and Manasseh were the two sons of Joseph. Joseph gets two instead of one. He's got the double portion of the firstborn. So that's one picture. Christ, the firstborn, loved of his father, sent by his father to his brethren with a doubt as to what they were doing. Then Joseph, they, it says they hated him. Joseph had dreams. Well, you say, well, he's not the only one. Ah, oh, yes, friend. But they were very, very far and few between, apparently, in the early days. It looks as though people were more simple, and they didn't have late suppers and all sorts of things and all the other things that give you dreams. So if some people I know were always going to find out what their dreams meant, they'd be spending most of their time. But when these people had a dream, it was an interposition from heaven. And these dreams were strange. He first of all thought that the sheaves of corn in the field all bowed down to his sheaf. And then he told them he had another. He had another dream. 
with the sun, moon, and the stars. I bow down. And the comment was, Shalt thou indeed reign over us? Or shalt thou indeed have dominion over us? Can't you hear the same thought in the Gospels? Well then, ultimately, their hatred of him led them, first of all, to plan his death. And then, a very strange interposition takes place in chapter 37. While they were thinking about his putting him to death, they saw some Ishmaelites in the distance, and they knew that they were on their way down to Egypt. So verse 26 says, Judah, now do remember, if this were the New Testament instead of the Old, it'd be Judas. Judas Iscariot is Judah. Judah said, what profit is it if we slay our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites. And how much did he sell him for? Verse 28, 20 pieces of silver. How much did Judas betray his saviour for? 30 pieces of silver. I suppose money had changed a little bit in its value. But can't you see how the type is keeping pace with reality? Well then as a consequence, Joseph is put into prison. And there, because of his ability to interpret dreams, a butler and a baker, who had both come under censure, said they'd had dreams. And he said, well, you are going to be executed, and you are going to be restored to your office. And Christ had beside him two thieves, and one looked on him and believed, and was assured that he would be with him in paradise. And the other went out blaspheming him. That may be accidental, but there's the two in the, in the prison, and there's the two there. And then, another feature. While his father and his brethren were suffering from panic, and his father thought that he was dead, Joseph was sitting on the throne of Egypt, blessing the Gentiles. Don't you see? That's what he's doing now. The people who are the brethren of Christ, they don't know where he is. They won't have it. They wouldn't have him to reign over them. And you and I are being blessed by a spiritual Joseph, administering blessing to a Gentile world in the interval. And then you remember he was given a peculiar name. In chapter... 41 verse 45 you can see it there near, near the bottom where the uh, coffin is it's in this chapter 41 45 Zaph, Zaph, Panir which when the authorised version was translated they couldn't they didn't know what else to do with it they gave you its Coptic meaning uh, but today you can go into the British Museum and see the Rosetta Stone, the key to opening the Egyptian hieroglyphics. And this name that was given to Joseph is practically the name that's given to Christ in the Gospel according to John. For it means the bread of life. That was a wonderful title to give a man who saved him from famine, wasn't it? The bread of life. And so it goes on. But as I want to get to the point where Ephesians 4 and the Ascension is associated with fullness. I must do it now, otherwise our time will finish. You say, now, where is this coming in? Well, we just have to look and see. Will you turn now to chapter 30, verse 24? Uh, 24, wait a minute, I just want to make sure of this. Yes. It says in verse 22, And God remembered Rachel, and she had a son, and she called his name Joseph. Now, perhaps you've never stopped to think what the name Joseph means. It's one of those names that have a meaning. Because, she said, the Lord shall add to me another son. The word Joseph means added. Now you say, well, I can't see very much in that. All because you can't see it, friends, doesn't prove it isn't there, is it? So, shall we look again? Chapter 35, verse 18. 
35, 18. This is Rachel again. And it came to pass, as her soul was in departing, for she died, that she called his name, this new son, Ben-Oni, son of my sorrow. But even though Jacob was moved, of course, at the death of this favorite wife of his, he said, oh no, no, no. Call his name Ben-Yamin, son of my right hand. Now look, the story of Joseph ends with him in a coffin in Egypt. And that's where some people end when they speak of Christ. But the two together make the type. Not Joseph by himself. His very name means something's got to be added. And the something that's got to be added is the son of the right hand, the ascended Christ. Oh, you may say that's far-fetched. It isn't. It's all implicit. And then you know the one thing that's said about Joseph in the long list of faith in Hebrews? Would you believe it? The only thing that the Holy Ghost picks out of all the things he might have said about Joseph to commend him to us, he gave commandment concerning his bones. Don't you see? That implies the whole thing. A resurrection. And a resurrection points away to the right hand. Of course, that's where Christ ascended. So I'm finishing by reading two verses that you'll find in the Berean Expositor for volume 23, page 160. They were said to me by a brother, Mr. Morton. And I think you'll just say what I'm trying to say at the very end of this survey. Some of us stay at the cross. Some of us wait at the tomb. Quickened, raised, seated with Christ, yet lingering still in its gloom. Some of us bide at the Passover feast, with ascension all unknown, the triumphs of grace in the heavenly place that our Lord has made our own. If the Christ who died had stopped at the cross, his work had been incomplete. If the Christ who was buried had stayed in the tomb, he had only known defeat. But the way of the cross never stops at the cross, and the way of the tomb leads on to victorious grace in the heavenly place where the risen Lord has gone. That's adding the name Benjamin to the name Joseph and brings the story of Genesis right out to that glorious climax. So shall we leave it there without spoiling?